everyone, welcome to the 226th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a spectacular show for you today. We're going to be talking about Google deciding against the smart home. Microsoft has done something huge for the enterprise IoT, I think. Tile, the location tracker company, has raised a lot of money, and it's surprising. We're also going to talk about Google's new algorithms to predict home energy usage at the device level, a device that we're not sure we need and question why Wise is doing a scale. Plus, we've got a little bit of news from Huawei, more from Google, a little bit from Adobe, and LG. Kevin has also been trying out a new IoT security device that you are going to want to hear about. Plus, this week, our sponsor is Dell Technologies, talking about building solutions for the medical device industry. And our guest is Yana Wellender of a company that is launching today called Craftful. We're going to find out more about that company and everything else after a message from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Afero. Are you doing multiple IoT projects that work well together in a single app that strengthens your brand? That is really tough, and it requires the right platform. With Afero, Kenmore launched 42 smart appliance models in just two years. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market, 99% fewer support calls, and 10x higher activation rates. Plus, they can reuse 90% of their work from one project to the next. So pick a Faro, just like Kenmore, Mitsubishi Bank, UFJ Group, and D-Link did, and beat your competition with a solution that your team loves to build on and your customers love to use. Learn more at afaro.io slash go big. Okay, Kevin. So first up, we have news from Google, specifically from Rishi Chandra, who is VP of Product and General Manager at Google Nest. And Rishi kind of shocked a bunch of people by talking about how he doesn't believe in the smart home. But really, that was kind of clickbait headlines, I think, right? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Google does believe in the smart home. Google just doesn't want us to call it the smart home. They want to call it the helpful home. And as people who have covered Google's smart home efforts since they purchased Nest, even before then, actually, and then had covered Nest all the way back in 2012, when Tony Fidel was the founder and at Google in talking about this, this is not a big shift. Google now wants to call this the helpful home, and they want to enable it by what they call ambient computing. I feel like we've even used ambient computing. It used to be a big thing back uh, 2013, I think. And it was actually like, I think we called it ambient information or ambient display, which was basically this idea that the devices around you are connected somehow, and they're going to pull information from APIs, from other devices, from your personal data, and deliver information in a way that isn't like a notification on your smart home screen. So a good example would be an umbrella that lights up when it's planned to rain today, so you can just grab it on your way out the door. I would buy that product, by the way. Would you? Because the problem is we all said, hey, we'd buy that. But then the business models made it impossible. You'd have to have a subscription for that umbrella. And If the company went out of business, then you'd have this really expensive umbrella. It might be like $200 for it. 
This is true. So I will just use the Dark Sky API and make my own little ambient bulb next to my umbrella. Right. There are a bunch of challenges here. One is probably first and foremost is cost. That's how consumers read it, right? These things cost a lot of money, and that's historically been the case. And then the next big thing for developers and also consumers has been there's no standard to make these things work together. So Rishi is acknowledging this. He's not really offering a great solution, I'll be honest. He's <laughs> He is saying that Google's efforts to get rid of the Nest API are part of that solution because it, it sounds like he's trying to simplify. I'm putting my skeptical hat on and saying maybe he's just trying to build a closed ecosystem, but time will tell on that front. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Everything you said, I agree with. It's it's This is not a new concept. We're talking about ambient computing. We're still waiting for the ambient OS from... Uh, Essential, Andy Rubin's company. I that think you should happened. probably keep waiting on that. And you know, I think while you're yeah, waiting, I, make other plans. <laughs> I think so. I do see this as not a rebranding, but a focus away from your privacy and data because of all of the people's concern, valid concerns about giving up your data. Because this is actually part of the Google Assistant mantra too. It's the more helpful assistant. That was the big theme at IO. Helpful, helpful, helpful. So I think they're tying it all together now with the hardware products, number one. And two, by saying helpful assistant, you're focused less on smarts and data and such. And yes, the data model doesn't change. You still need to give up some data to have the this helpfulness, but maybe people will not think about giving up that data as much. Well, I think what's important to think about here is that you're giving up your data to get something back, right? You're mm-hmm. giving up data, but it's presumably for a service that you care about or that you need. And Google has been very, even as far back as like 2014 and talking to Google about these things, Google doesn't want to use this data to advertise to you. It wants to use this data to build better products. Now, you may hate that idea because they are going to design products that, you know, are based on your data. And those products may be things like services. They may not be physical hardware. To me, it's like it's using your data in service of, of capitalism, which some people mm-hmm. may be like, ah, and, and well, y'all can have a few. <laughs> data is the new gold or oil. So uh, they're, they're not the only ones doing this. Yeah, I don't believe that, by the way. <laughs> I do, actually. I do. If it's the new oil, it's the new crude. I think the insights derived from the data are the true value. I think the idea of data being the new oil can be horribly misleading because Mm. I also think unlike oil, which, you know, people want to control and corral the data, you can get data from a lot of different places. There's no one lock on data streams necessarily. There's few items where there's going to be a complete lock on it. And it also encourages this model of scarcity in a way that I don't think is going to help with like the creation of standards or getting us to a place where like the internet is. So if you want ambient computing, that data is going to have to be shared in some meaningful format across different companies or consumers have to buy into like a one brand throughout everything. And I just don't think that's reasonable. This is true. But that also leads directly to our next story. Doesn't it though? I'm so glad you saw that segue. I saw that segue coming a mile away. Yeah, it wasn't subtle. All right. Speaking of data sharing, Microsoft, and this is why I'm excited about this. Microsoft has created three pre-designed licensing agreements for data sharing. So they're basically trying to do 
for data sharing what open source kind of did. So these licensing agreements will let people do a couple different things. So there is an open use of data agreement, and that's for use with open data sets. They don't have any personal data and they're not owned by a data provider. So it's the most open, least restricted. It's kind of like the the creative commons or what would that be? Yeah. Creative commons of data, we'll call it. And then they have a computational use of data agreement. And this is designed for using different data sets for AI training purposes that contain third-party materials. So it's a contract for use with a database. It will have open data, but also copyright protectable pieces of data like photos or maybe some text. Mm -hmm. You can use it to train, but you can't republish that data or redistribute the protected elements. And so think of something like maybe it's image recognition for animals, and maybe they pull data from customers' homes, or maybe it's image recognition for brands of food in a refrigerator, and they're pulling data from smart fridges. And so it'd be training for that, training for like recognizing different foods that could then be used in like, I don't know, point of sale systems at grocery stores. Right. And the data itself would be used for the modeling and learning, but would not be directly shared. Like those images, for example, would not be shared across platforms or companies. Yes. And then they've created the most restrictive license, which is their data use agreement for open AI model development. And this is basically proprietary data. This is for sharing stuff to train models with data that's proprietary. I'm actually really excited by this. And we talked a little bit about why that matters with like ambient computing, but it's also really important for things like in a world where we're going to have GDPR and you're trying to build algorithmic models for doing something, having this sort of contract in place is going to make it cheaper and faster to share relevant data and to rest on pretty secure legal foundations while you do it. What will be Interesting is if these contracts hold up against something like GDPR, where like a user can retroactively pull their information. Like if I could suddenly write to a company and pull my data, my image data, for example, then do they have to pull that from like any training sets? We don't know yet. And so, right. These are proposals. They're actually uh, publicly available. So you can comment on these proposals, which I think is great. And we'll link to that. Yeah, taking the whole open approach. And I think there's another benefit here from the consumer side. Like we typically don't want our photos that we capture on our phones scanned and such, right? We know that happens today. It happens, say, with Google Photos, for example. But if I knew that, as example, as an example, Google says we subscribe to the second one, the computational use of data agreement, we're just going to use this for training our models, and none of your data will ever go or move beyond that. So your data is still your data. What we will use is the aggregated machine learning models that we've gathered from everybody's data. Maybe a little bit more of a sense of security from a consumer standpoint. A hundred percent. And I also think in the corporate realm, one of the things that has been very challenging is the legal teams are looking at some of the data that like an industrial manufacturing that you can get from the lines. And they're like, whoa, Nellie, we don't want to share this highly proprietary information with anyone. And, and that makes sense. But there's no contracts right now for that. 
people are trying to develop them. And this gives those companies and those legal teams a starting place. They may not want their stuff to be licensed this way, but it at least gives them the added heft of Microsoft's legal team kind of helping them define terms and and pick things out here. So I'm really excited about this. I think it's a big deal. And I will also say that Microsoft has been thinking about building marketplaces for data and sharing data like this for basically the last 10 years. I have talked to people on this all the way back when I was brand new at GigaOM, so like 2009, 2008 timeframe. And I have been waiting for this forever. So I'm very excited. I hope this works. Okay. Here's some doubtful news. Not doubtful, just weird. <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> yeah, we were both surprised to see this, but we'll share the the good news for Tile, the Bluetooth tracking company. Uh, they've raised $45 million in a Series B funding round. Yeah. Kevin's um, like, why? <laughs> well, and I say that because I think it was last year that they laid off a bunch of folks they rejiggered or pivoted their products to be a, a subscription service, and they were also going to license their technology. And I didn't think that was going to really work for them at the time, but apparently it is. And that seems counterintuitive since they just raised more money. You think maybe they raised more money because, you know, they're running out of funds. But even though they haven't shared figures from their new subscription premium services, it has vastly exceeded expectations. So, I guess they want the money to expand beyond what products they have in the current subscription service. I do not know. So here's what this is about. There's a couple things. One is broad fundraising inflation. You are raising, I mean, we've seen this just across the board. Everybody's raising more money because they have to. That's one. But two is something I wrote about a month ago. So it is about Bluetooth. Back when the most recent iteration of Bluetooth came out, what came out with it is granular tracking. This granular tracking lets you basically understand where something is within a few inches. So not just like, oh, it's in your study, but you could say your keys are in your study on the table, provided you know like what the table is. So that's really important for location tracking, which is a huge industrial and enterprise IoT need. And it's also good for like people. The other side is Tile has put their SDK on Nordic's Bluetooth chips, Bluetooth chips from Silicon Labs, and I think from other big Bluetooth chip firms. And so now a company can actually just buy a Bluetooth chip that already has Tile integrated on it, which means just like with Apple's location finding feature for MacBooks, you could have location finding just by virtue of having a Bluetooth device, even if you're not caring about Tile. So their network expands exponentially. So this money will help Tile go up against a company like Apple (laughs) (laughs) and Google. Google is also supposedly thinking about a Bluetooth tag. So what we could see is Tile continuing with consumer, but also releasing tags for any number of things and basically creating a really good Bluetooth-based location tracking network. Yeah, more power to them. I hope it works out. Yeah, well, I I think that's, I mean, it's a good play. They will need money for it. So that's what I think is happening. Okay, so let's turn to cool uses of data. Would you call this? What would you call this, Kevin? Yeah, I I would say a combination of IoT and machine learning. All right, so what is Google doing? 
So Google has posted on its Google Cloud blog a really detailed and fairly technical blog post about the real-time prediction of operation status of home appliances by using machine learning. They're not the first people to do this. I mean, we've seen actual products that can monitor down to the individual circuit level of what power draw is coming from an appliance and give you insights into that. But those typically do it with hardware at the circuit level. This is actually using machine learning to predict which device in your home, which appliance is currently on or should be on or shouldn't be on based on the time of day. I mean, if your TV turns on in the middle of the night, that would be what Google calls an abnormal situation for most people. Not for me, because I sometimes watch TV in the middle of the night, but for most people. And the idea here with this project is to make the system smarter with machine learning to hopefully predict when appliances go on, go off, or how much power they should use, and then gather insights about that. Again, it's rather technical, but I think it's a, a good read for those who are interested in this technology. Let's tie it back to ambient computing, because basically this falls back into that same category of, let's look at what's happening in your home. Let's make some educated guesses about it. And then yep. the next step after you're like confident that, oh, this person is watching TV in the middle of the night, which is weird. The ambient computer may make a you know suggestion about, do you want a glass of warm milk? Or maybe it'll add that to your health files. I mean, there's, there's a lot of potential here. Some of yeah. it's good. Some of it could be used against us. So just take it forward and think where that's going to go. All right. Let's talk about not a smart ambient computing kind of device, but just a just a device. Another head scratcher. This is a product. <laughs> it's called it the It's like it's a product. It's called the Omnifob and it's a device you stick on your key ring. It's got Chipolo's tracking software in it and it has buttons on it that will let you do things like that you can program to do things like turn your lights on. I don't know. You're not excited about this. So much, only because it's a Kickstarter project. Um, and that doesn't mean I shouldn't be excited about it. I've, I've gotten excited about those before, but I wanted to point out it's Kickstarter. So it's at a lower price right now. It will be expected for $129. It's, as you said, got the Bluetooth locator powered by Chipolo. There's a remote shutter button for your phone, a panic button to send a preset text message in your GPS coordinates to people as a little mini flashlight. I guess I sit here and look at this and say, my phone could really do all this, and I carry my phone pretty much everywhere, so why do I need to carry a fob too? And maybe it's just me. You are a person who does not carry your phone everywhere, so maybe this would be something you're interested in. Maybe, and it also has an LCD screen, which is worth noting because that helps you understand what exactly you're about to turn on with this thing. To me, it's like the Swiss Army knife or one of those like Leatherman multi-tools, right? Mm -hmm. Some people need them. Some people don't. I'm going to go with I don't need something like this. Nothing about this appeals to me. If you're the type of person who like wants to go running without their phone or keys, I I don't know. I, I talk to them. And the guys that make this keyport, it is not a device for me. It's probably a device for someone. And if it's a device for you, if you're like the Swiss Army knife person, the Leatherman tool, but the digital equivalent of that, then, you know, check this out. But eh. yeah, and your example is actually a good one because I, I run and I often have either an LTE connected watch or something like that. Most people run with their phones and so on. But even so, I don't think this has any Wi-Fi or LTE connectivity to it. So 
if you hit that panic button, for example, it's going to need your phone to send the message. It's a head scratcher to me. People who don't want to open their phone, but just want a quick access to a physical thing. Right. I don't know. Again, yep. not for us. Wait, we've got it. one more head scratcher. Kevin, why is Wise doing a scale? This is actually, it's not super baffling, but a Wise scale. And we've heard about this before, but the, the scale actually leaked at the FCC. So there's photos. It looks like a smart scale. It's, <laughs> I don't know how else to like, yeah. This is a totally different direction for Wise because it's now health related. That leads me to believe they'll have more health-related products because the scale alone isn't going to do much other than, you know, send the data to your Wise app or your phone. Uh, it's just a new a, a new plot twist in the Wise strategy. Yeah, and they are doing the pre-orders for their plug, it looks like. So if you are a Wise subscriber, pre-orders for the plug, they'll begin Tuesday, the 30th of July, and you can check those out. They're Two plugs for 20 bucks is pretty good. Two Wi-Fi plugs. Yeah, there you go. And I, a couple of weeks ago, said that this is a smart company or smart home company to watch because I think it's cheap. I think it is easy to experiment with this and let people play. And it's pretty easy for people to actually implement. So, you know, maybe health is a big market. Being able to monitor people from afar is probably useful for lots of people. And doing so, I mean, a camera is a little intrusive, but having a scale and maybe some sensors somewhere, that may make sense. And heck, if I had a digital scale that was like 40 or 50 bucks, I'd buy it. But I am not sold on like the $120, scales that are out there that connect to like my Fitbit or my whatever other systems there are. Wythings has one. I actually am. I have one. I mean, I step on the scale so rarely that I am, you know, I'm like, eh, I can manually undo it. I bought the Fitbit Aria and I do use it. So I'm happy with it. It gives me long-term insights into my burgeoning belly, unfortunately. Your burgeoning belly. Excellent. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens there. All right. Some quick news bits. Are you ready? Huawei. Vice President at Huawei, the, the Chinese firm, has confirmed that their Hongming OS is for the IoT, not for smartphones. This is notable because a couple months ago when the U.S. said, hey, don't use any Huawei stuff, Google was like, ah, we've got to pull Android. And Huawei was like, ah, that's okay. We have our own OS we're developing. But now they're saying that OS is for IoT. So, And it could be that Hongming OS is for IoT. People ran with the Hongming OS for phones because they saw trademarks and such and figured, just assumed, basically, it's going to be the Android replacement or plan B for Huawei. So maybe Hongming OS is for IoT. We don't know. Their Huawei's founder said, Hongming is not designed for phones, as everyone thinks. We didn't develop the OS to replace Google. And if Google does withdraw its OS from Huawei, we will need to start building an ecosystem because we don't have a clear plan yet. That's his quote. And that's pretty grim. So maybe he's telling the truth and he would really like to keep working with Android. All right. What else do we have? We have Google Assistants. They're better now if you're using the Abode security system. Kevin? Yeah, that's good. Um, I think up till now, you could only use the Google Assistant to control light switches and smart plugs. But now you can ask the Assistant to arm your abode system and even disarm the security system. Although for that, you need a four-digit PIN code. 
the assistant commands also move beyond the original limited devices now to include smart locks, garage door openers, cameras, and door window sensors. So broader range of support on Abode for Google Assistant voice commands. There we go. And speaking of voice commands, Adobe has put out some new research related to their voice summit that is happening this week. What they found is 91% of brands are already making a big investment in voice and 71% of those brands see voice as improving the user experience. However, most consumers are saying that, yes, voice technology is easy to use, but over half report that finding the process of using voice technology non-intuitive. And 49% say they don't necessarily know how to begin to accomplish a task. And that makes sense. That's things like, hey, Madam A, open blah, blah, blah to do X. That's tough. And what Adobe and actually Amazon's people are doing in response to this is talking about the need for voice designers. So this is a UX designer for voice. And and Amazon has come out and said, hey, you should use things like storyboarding when you are designing a skill for Madam A. And that's what Adobe is talking about, the UX requirement here with a screen, without a screen. And I agree. I do think voice right now, we are still at the very early stages. We need the equivalent of like, I always call it the equivalent of pinch to zoom for voice, which is basically a universal set of commands that work for a very small set of widely applicable features, if that makes sense. That makes sense. I look beyond that and say with machine learning and and AI that you should be able to ask for something in any way, shape, or form that makes sense to you, and the system should correctly interpret it. But that's not today. That is the future. Yeah. And part of it isn't the understanding of the speech. It's tying that speech back to the API call or the app that needs to be engaged. Right. To me, it's context. The problem here isn't necessarily understanding what we want. It's knowing how to implement that command. Bingo. And that's tough for a wide variety of reasons. So mm-hmm. I will see. And finally, for those of you guys who are into HomeKit and you are also into LG TVs, guess what? Your LG TV gets HomeKit enablement and the ability to play Apple Music on your TV. And you can control the TV via Siri. It's pretty basic. But hey, we diss on HomeKit that it doesn't move forward enough. And this is a step forward for people who own relatively yes, new LG TVs. Yes, you have to have a 2019 model. <laughs> yes. So really new TV. That feels like enough news for this part of the week. Let's talk about your experience with a new device, Kevin. Let's do that. And I will try to keep this short because A, there is so much to talk about with this device. And B, I have a written review of it that you can go and see all the details and screenshots. The device is called Firewalla. And what this is, is depending on the model that you purchase for either $110 or $180, it basically monitors your home network. And when I mean home network, I don't just mean what people are surfing on their phones and what you're watching on TV, but also what servers your IoT device data is going to, because we think we know where that's going. We trust these companies to say, yeah, we're just going to take your data to make better products or learn how to detect a person from our webcam. But do you really know? 
You don't. You kind of trust them. With the Fire Wallet, you really know because it literally shows the entire network flow from every device in your home and shows where that data is going, the servers, who owns the servers, what the IP address of the servers are, who maybe has the uh, ownership of the URLs, I mean, even what country and location. And luckily, after adding the Fire Wallet to my house, all of the data for my devices was going where I expected it to go. So that's a good thing. But again, I tend to buy the name brand stuff that from brands that I trust. So this is a super small device. It's literally the size of a USB phone charger. It's really small. It's just got a small processor, an SD card for the operating system, an Ethernet port to plug into your router, and USB for power. That's it. The app that comes with it is very, very good. It literally shows you every device on your network, what the upload and downloads are, the bandwidth used, and again, where those devices are surfing to, even what types of apps they're using. And this gets into some of the non-IoT aspects, but if you're using social media a lot on your phones, it will group that activity by social media activity or email activity or messaging activity, in which case you can use some of the one-touch controls to, boom, turn off all social networking on my network for an hour and have family time. Or maybe you want to block sites, uh, access to gaming sites or porn sites or whatever you'd like. There's a ton of controls such as that. Some other things that it has, it will surface alerts when it detects abnormal uploads or downloads from a device. And interestingly, I get that alert quite a bit from the June oven. That's only because Firewalla thinks it's abnormal. So in the middle of the night, maybe two meg of data was sent up to the AWS servers. I found that out thanks to Firewalla because June now uses the AWS. So I'm comfortable with that. You can block that, you know, if it's, if you think it's abnormal, you can block that from happening again. Or I just mute the June oven now because I don't care that it's sending its data to the June folks. Everything you cook the, that day part of the product. go into June. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But think of if it, if it was sending my videos from a, a camera to servers in, say, China or Russia. I would see that. I could block it and start wondering, should I be using that device anymore? So very handy. Another nifty feature, you get a built-in VPN server on this little box. And that is awesome because A, you should be using a VPN server when you're out and about on public Wi-Fi. But B, there's no subscription fee, which is typically something that comes with a VPN server because a third party will have to operate that server. Since the server's in your house, there's no fee. And even better, this was a huge concern I had. If I am out of town, maybe I'm in another country, say where Netflix isn't supported, how could I use this? You know, how could I watch Netflix? Because the VPN server's in my home, Netflix thinks I am still at home in Pennsylvania, and therefore I can watch Netflix. It would not be blocked if I was in a country that does not support it. So no fees, and the location of the VPN server is your home location. So I love, love, love that. I love that that was your huge concern. Where can I watch yeah. Netflix? <laughs> well, all of our all of our online content is well, all of our content that we watch is online. No more cable. So, you know, YouTube TV, Hulu, Amazon Prime. That's important when I'm out and about. You know, it protects against malware. Um, there's a built-in ad blocker. I've turned that on. Therefore, I don't have to put ad blockers on all of my individual devices. It's just a whole home ad blocker. How much is the Firewella? If you get the red version, they come in two colors. The red version is if your home internet speeds are 
100 megabits per second or less. That is normally 129. I see it for 109 right now. I tested the blue Firewalla, which is for internet, home internet speeds approaching or beyond one gigabit per second, which is what I happen to have at my house for speeds. That is normally 199. I see it for 179 right now. And just to point out, I did test if adding the Firewalla slows my home internet or my internal Wi-Fi. It didn't seem to. I did lots of testing and in my house with my configuration, I don't see any noticeable speed difference. You may see that depending on the brand of router you use or the technology or your home's architecture. I do not know, but I did not see that. I have to point out the one flaw that I found because it's really important. What is it? There's a known issue when using Firewall with Google Wi-Fi. They believe the company thinks it's related to how Google either refreshes or flushes its DNS every two to three hours. And the reason I knew about it was because every two to three hours after using this with my Google Wi-Fi, my home internet would have no access to the outside world. It was crazy frustrating. The resolution for now, which does work, is to take your Google Wi-Fi access point, put it into bridge mode, which works. However, that means you have disabled mesh networking over Wi-Fi, and therefore I have a Google Wi-Fi access point here in my office that's doing absolutely nothing. I got to say, frustrating as it is to not have my mesh networking coverage, I am so impressed by this product that I almost don't mind. Wow. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, I'm paying 10 bucks to Eero for monitoring right now. This actually offers me more. So I've got 120 bucks a year going to Eero and that could be for the foreseeable future, which Eero, by the way, is going to be Amazon. And I'm like, oh, you know, for 180 bucks, maybe I just own this for a while and it sounds better. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, and I don't know for sure because I don't have an Eero, but I don't think you can monitor down to the flow level all the way through to the end server where your data is going. I don't see the end server. I can see data happening and -hmm. it has the ad blocker. It has parental controls, but I can't see the level to which you can see. Well, let's put it this way. If you don't want to see that level of detail, I'm sure that- Well, you do and I do, but not everybody does. So what I'm going to say is if you're happy with the network monitoring that you have in place today, okay, I wouldn't buy this unless you want to add a VPN or have those fine grain controls that Firewall does offer. If you want the network flows for where your device data is going, there are other options. You could build your own. You could run a Raspberry Pi to monitor your network traffic. But this is really well done from an end user standpoint with the app that I probably wouldn't bother building. I would just get this. Got it. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for testing that out for us. I will link to the review in the show notes for more details. And now it is time for the Internet of Things podcast hotline, where we take your voicemails and we answer your questions. The hotline is sponsored by Schlage. Schlage's wide variety of smart locks lets you create the smart home of your dreams. Learn more about Schlage's smart home solutions and compatibility with Amazon's, Apple's, and Google's products. All that plus more at schlage.com slash IOT. Okay, this week we're combining basically two voicemails, and you'll hear one from Dean, and then we have another question from Richard, who's going for something slightly similar. So, Let's hear it. Hi, Stacy and Kevin. Totally love your show. I am Dean. I live in Minnesota. A uh, real simple question, but I can't seem to find the answers when I 
search this. I use Hue lights in my house, and as a gift, I was given three more to which I use for my lights on the outside, on the garage, and the entryway. What is the safe? Is it safe, or what are the risks of whether it be heat or, as we can experience in Minnesota, extreme cold, of keeping them out there? Or is there any? And if not, what are some options without adding other devices, other systems to my IoT world? Thanks a ton. Love the show. Talk to you later. All right. So we have Dean's question out there in the frozen frigid north. And Richard had a similar question, which was about smart outdoor lights and battery powered switches. He was trying to avoid a hub, but I don't think he's going to be able to. So First up, Dean. Hue lights. They are lovely. I love them. There are only one pair of Hue outdoor lights, and that's the PAR 38. Those are rated to use down to negative four degrees Fahrenheit, which probably doesn't cut it in Minnesota. Yeah, and that's the outdoor lights. If you're using an indoor light outdoor, they're rated to use to negative 10 degrees Celsius, which is 14 degrees Fahrenheit, which I know doesn't cut it in Minnesota. Right. It would totally be fine here in Seattle or in Texas where I used to live. But that's one. That's what they're rated for. They may work in lower temperatures, but you're, you're obviously you're taking a chance. Yeah. So we did not find a lot of smart outdoor lights. For very cold climates. No. For super cold climates. And that's just a function of electronics. Hue also offers a few outdoor fixtures, but we could not find their IP44 rated, which protects against debris, but we could not find information about temperature on those. So the bottom line is I'm not sure how those are going to fare in your harsh Minnesota winters. Feel free to let us know. If you guys have a harsh winter and have Hue lights deployed outside, talk to us about them. Otherwise, there's not a lot of options. One option is keeping your old bulbs and swapping out for a smarter switch that might be in a more protected area. But that involves playing with electricity and you may not want to go for that. Dealing with Richard, who is a related voicemail, he wanted smart outdoor lights and a battery powered switch because his house has terrible wiring, basically. So he would like a switch inside that controls outdoor lights. He wanted Wi-Fi, but because of power consumption, there are no wireless Wi-Fi switches that we could find. An option is Bluetooth. I don't know how far away your lights are from your switch. My best recommendation was actually to do, he's in Massachusetts, so there are temperature constraints here as well, but is to do maybe the hue bulbs outside especially if they're in a, like a protected enclosure and get the $25 hue light switch that can be mounted to a wall and control those bulbs. Now that does require buying a hue hub. If you don't want to do that, you want a more generic hub. I would recommend doing a smart things hub and then do a Zigbee or Z wave switch indoor to control the lights. The lights can be Wi-Fi power. They can be whatever you want as long as they work with smart things. Yeah, a couple of options there, but hubless is is tough, really tough. Hubless and Wi-Fi is tough. Wi-Fi is tough for battery power constraint purposes. And so if you don't want to plug something in, wireless is tough and hubless is tough if you can't do Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. 
and Bluetooth is tough because of range issues. Sigh. We're working on it. The smart home is still an ongoing effort. All right. Don't call it the smart home. It's the helpful home. That's right. The helpful home full of ambient computing is still an ongoing effort. That just doesn't have the same ring. No. If you would like us to answer your question on the hotline, you can call us at 512-623-7424. And you will be entered to win a Schlage lock if you call us before July 31st at midnight. Call us after that point, you're going to be entered to win something else. And now, stay tuned for our guest, Yana Wellender of Craftful. Craftful is a brand new company launching today that builds apps for companies that don't want to do their own. And we talk about why that might be necessary, the advantages, the disadvantages, and this whole business after a word from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Dell Technologies. Hey everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Dell Technologies, and today we are joined by Brian Jones, who is a general manager for the OEM and IoT solutions division at Dell Technologies. Brian, I understand you were also recently asked to serve as one of the executive sponsors for Dell Technologies' IoT and Edge business. Can you briefly share with us how your group is helping customers embrace IoT? Stacy, thanks for having me on. It's really great to have an opportunity to chat with you. So from an OEM perspective, we're really focused on, for our customers, helping them take their IP, combine it with our technology, and create a new product that they take to market. And our customers have been doing IoT since long before IoT had a name. And so we're kind of a natural place to help with the IoT and Edge division. And so what we do is we really help customers focus on and deliver three things. First, help them compress their time to market. So they focus on their IP. We focus on the technology platform and the integration of the two. The second piece is really delivering tier one technology. And that tier one technology gets them the very best quality and customer experience. And then the last piece is whether they're a multinational or they're a small software startup, we help them scale globally, reducing cost and complexity and taking their product to a global market. Excellent. And I understand that your division is pretty unique compared to what most of my audience thinks about when they think about Dell Technologies. They're thinking servers and PCs, but your division focuses more on factory floors than data centers. It's OT, not IT. Is that right? That's right. So a great example of an OEM customer is they're developing software or solutions that they're going to take to market. So a lot of CAT scans or medical devices, they're developing the software and the actual CAT scan device itself, but all of that needs to run on a server that's in a maybe a very hard um, operational environment, high temperature, dust, vibration. And so we help them develop the platform that they then integrate into their solution. They'll put their logo on it and they sell it out to their customer as their end solution. Okay. And so how does your OEM division really help those customers get ahead? So we are really focused on first, the IP that they're developing is at the center of the solution. And then we help them surround that IP with the right technology platforms. And we're drawing from all of Dell technologies. So not just Dell EMC and hardware, but also VMware, Pivotal, RSA, SecureWorks. 
everything that makes up Dell Technologies is part of the palette that we can help a customer paint their product picture from. And so at the Dell Technologies level, we're able to bring the entire power of the company, hardware, software, services, program management, engineering, all of that together to create a net new product based on their IP and our technology that that customer then takes to market. Awesome. So where can folks go to learn more? So for more information and for some case studies on the solutions that we've helped our customers develop, go out to delemc.com forward slash OEM. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and today's guest is Yana Wellender, who is co-founder and CEO of Craftful. Hello, Yana. How are you doing today? I'm great. Really excited to be here. Awesome. So you had reached out to me about your startup, which was founded this year. You used to work at IFT. And what is it that you guys are doing at Craftful? So we provide user-friendly mobile apps for smart home companies so that they can stay focused on building great hardware products. So smart home companies like G, Bosch, Lutron generally prioritize great hardware over the digital user experience, which does make sense. Hardware's hard. They have less in-house expertise in software. And the result is usually a lot of smart home apps that have a few downloads, poor app store ratings. Even the Nest app has two stars on the app store. So we give hardware companies the experience of having their own Silicon Valley software team. And that means providing white label apps, all the cloud services needed to support an app, fully managed upgrades, and analytics to help improve the app over time, in, as well as the device based on feedback and interaction. So our goal generally is to make digital interfaces more user-friendly and accessible so that more people can enjoy the benefits of smart home devices. That is a lot of things to think about. I will agree with you 100% on bad app experiences from hardware people. In fact, I feel like I have tried a couple devices that are awesome. And the teams behind were like, you know what, we're just going to do a web interface because we don't even want to mess with an app. So (laughs) I feel you on this. I think it's probably Mm -hmm. hard. How do you sell this to someone? Do you just go up to like a Lutron and say, hey, your app is really terrible? (laughs) How does that work? That's a great question. I think a lot of these hardware enterprises, they understand that we're moving to a world where every product will be connected and they need to get to market first with the best connected experience. And so a lot of these companies, when we're talking with them, we're primarily kind of, we are pointing out the the things that can be done better and how we are providing a good user experience. But generally, they see that, you know, they're not digital first companies, so they don't have software talent readily available to develop and support the digital experience for their connected products. And they know that focusing on both hardware and software is hard, even for digital first companies, as I mentioned, that you know, the Nest app only has two stars in the app store. So generally, they're excited about the, the opportunity to get someone to support their mobile app so that they can focus on their hardware product. I think sometimes, though, bad hardware also leads to poor app store ratings. So I'm sure that every time the Nest app goes down or the thermostat gets cut off from the cloud from some sort of server issue, people are like, grr, I will take it out here. But I thought it'd be great to talk to you, given that you're a design-centric kind of thinking, and we had a good conversation earlier about where companies have gone wrong so far in selling the smart home. 
I think it's really interesting because we're in this place right now where we had all this hype and excitement and power users coming in and kind of dictating the terms of a lot of apps. And I'm not sure that that's really helping other people adopt the smart home. So first, talk to me about where you see mainstream adoption. That's a great point because right now, I think, you know, the biggest change that is coming for smart home devices is that they're getting cheaper and cheaper. You know, connected light bulb is pretty much cost the same as a regular light bulb right now. And so more and more people will get, are going to start using smart home devices. That mainstream adoption is going to challenge the user experience to be more user friendly. Up until now, I, a lot of smart home companies have gotten away with pretty complicated UX flows because they're primarily serving a power user that's going to be poking around the app until they find what they're looking for. And sometimes even kind of enjoy cracking that non-obvious problem, mainstream users are not going to have that technical savviness or the patience. So that means that smart home companies really need to get much more user-friendly to serve that audience well. Just being able to show the benefits of an app quickly, the benefits of a connected device quickly, it shouldn't take you that long to set up a device uh, or it shouldn't take you that long to start seeing the key features in the app. Got it. What are some good design principles? Where do you think the focus of an app for lighting, for example, if I'm building a lighting product, what should I be looking for? I I know that I, and I'm kind of a power user, but I'm also really lazy. So I'm like, what do I really want out of my app? What do you think Mm -hmm. consumers want? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what we've seen is a lot of apps that are good at leveraging intuitions that users have built up from interacting with the physical world. That's usually provides for a better experience. So users know how to turn on and off traditional light switch or a dimmer. And so apps that model that behavior instead of inventing interfaces that users never seen before tend to be more intuitive. A big thing for a smart light app is that, you know, their most common use cases, they're basically replacing a switch on the wall. So they need to be, they, they need to make that most common interaction as simple as possible. As simple as just like walking over to the, to the wall and, and flipping a switch. <laughs> so that means that it needs to be really easy to connect the light. You wrote about how easy the onboarding for the Wise app was and c- consumers who are new to the smart home space, critical to be able to realize value quickly for, for that device. And so setting up a Wise cam shouldn't require you to get familiar with the entire ecosystem to get that up and running. And so similarly, I think that onboarding is, is, is important for, for smart lights. The ability to use the light without much configuration. Uh, the Hue app has done a good job iterating on their app over the years. And so one thing that users really love are default scenes that they can just start using and don't need to do a lot of work. On the flip side, surfacing the on-off switch on the home screen is really important. Users usually complain when they can't find or it takes them a few clicks to get to the on-off switch or the dimmer. And when apps make purchasing additional light bulbs more prominent and users are like, well, that's cool and all, but I've already bought one light bulb and I want to be able to control that first before I buy additional ones. Okay, so let's break some of that down because some of it's universal, like onboarding. I feel like individual ecosystems are getting better about onboarding. So you've got like the the Z-Wave folks, they have their, I can't think of the name of it right now to get things online. Amazon has an effort there where if you buy a product from them, it can automatically be linked to your existing Wi-Fi credentials if you have given them to it. How do we make onboarding easy, especially for devices that may not have a screen? That's a good question. And I think the onboarding can be made easier by just making sure that the steps that are set out in the app are clearly 
defined. A lot of apps, at least from a user perspective, feel like they've always been almost been designed for a different device because it doesn't refer to the specific, like what you're doing. It feels like this was a generalized interface designed for any kind of connected device and it's sort of just covering all the different bases. So they're not setting expectations clearly. Error messages could be much clearer. Sometimes you don't need to have as many error messages. That's another piece. Something goes wrong. The app could be retrying things for you instead of making it feel like you've done something wrong. And on the flip side, it could be an error message. Like if there's actually something that the user could do differently and improve, then the error message should be there and it should be very clear what the user should do. So there's a lot of things that the flow could be improved on just by making sure that you're using like clear, concise language that applies specifically to the device. Got it. Yes, I have had mystery error messages often. Let's talk about the business ecosystem that you're entering into, because it honestly feels to me like designing an app, it feels like maybe a feature, not necessarily a full-on product for a company. If I'm like Whirlpool, I'm already talking to a Tuya or an Ayla or some other company to provide my cloud backend. Maybe I've got another company doing my business analytics. Now I bring you in to make my app for consumers. How do you see that evolving over time? I think for a lot of the platforms that our customers already use today, we do work alongside their existing systems that customers have in place. More often, those are specialized systems that are supporting products currently in market. And so our goal is to help customers with that great user experience, which they know is key because that's one half of the experience that they're offering their end users, right? But the other half is the device and the digital user experience is actually what makes the device connected or smart from the user's perspective. So that's something that's key to our customers. But at the same time, we're plugging into the the system that they have in place. So if they're working already are working with some platforms, we're offering them a partial solution so that they can continue working with those. It's our job to help them with the customer, with the sort of a great user experience, not to make restrictive technology or platform recommendations. Got it. And if I'm a company trying to look at this, I'm like, ah, eh, you know, I feel like I can build an app. What else do you guys offer? Our uh, solution is a complete software solution. So we support everything that sits above the software on the device itself. That includes the mobile apps for both iOS and Android. And then we have cloud services to support those apps. So think about things like push notifications, activity feeds, location services, multi-device things, basically anything in a mobile app that would require cloud service support, we provide that as well. And then we also provide analytics both using interaction data from the app itself and also machine learning analysis of quality reviews. So both kind of for the specific app and also other apps in the same category, we're looking at how are users responding to specific features. And then we provide recommendations for improvements to the app. And sometimes that also means improvements to the hardware product itself. That makes a ton of sense. And I assume you guys also will update the app over time. And do you handle things like, I don't know, security vulnerabilities and thinking about like how to patch that? Yeah, absolutely. So we definitely, our offering includes regular updates to the app, as well as like any kind of regular things that happen across the board, like a new operating system is introduced. But specifically for security, though, we obviously follow all of the best practices by encrypting data in transit and address, anonymizing analytic data, requesting granular permissions in our apps. But I think what makes Craftful unique is that we leverage our economies of scale to build 
secure features once and then share that functionality with all the apps we manage. So obviously no one sets out to build an insecure app, but when you're starting from scratch, you really need to prioritize every feature. And in that context, it's really easy to understand why so many smart home apps have struck a bad balance when it comes to security. And so with Craftful, you get a secure, robust experience by default. So if your app would benefit from something like two-factor auth, you'll have that from day one. And it's basically like a no-cost decision, which I think is really exciting. That is really exciting. So I, I think that level of, it's kind of like standardization or expertise in this area, I think is really important for broadening the whole ecosystem. So yay. All right. Can you talk about any of your customers? Good question. So no, <laughs> unfortunately not yet. So there are no customers we can name just yet for obvious reasons that we're fairly early on. But what I can say is we're, we're collaborating with around a dozen of the biggest household brands to help them with their apps for things like smart lights, thermostats, and then various home appliances. Maybe to give it kind of a general idea, it's mostly Fortune 500 companies that are more established in the traditional hardware device space and are at some point in their digital transformation journey. But it's also kind of some, some devices you've talked about on the podcast or written about, but we're still early on with those collaborators. So you guys are at Y Combinator now. You were formed this year. Have you raised any funding? We are backed by Y Combinator. Our goal, obviously, is to be a VC-backed business, currently funded by Y Combinator. But I think there's a big opportunity to solve user experience in the smart home in a way that operating as an agency or a development shop wouldn't allow us to achieve, which is why it's crucial for us to be VC-backed. So it doesn't seem like a super scalable business model, though. It does seem more like an agency business model. So how do you plan to make that work for a venture investor? The way we work is very different from a traditional agency model. We start from a, a UX flow that is optimized for the best user experience in a particular category like lights or thermostats. And then we add additional support for distinct features in the customer's hardware. And then we apply visual identity and branding on top of that, which means that we are actually building these apps in a fairly scalable way. Got it. Awesome. All right. Well, Yana, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 